0: Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. In today's episode, we take a look at the potential impact of the French presidency of the Council of the EU on the European bloc's China policy but we also go a little bit more domestic by looking at French China policy itself. Stay tuned also for predictions on what the outcome of the upcoming presidential elections in France can mean for the country's engagement with China. Joining me to discuss these issues is Francois Godemont, who needs little introduction to EU China Watchers. He is a senior advisor for Asia at the Institut Montaigne in Paris, a non-resident senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C., as well as an external consultant for the policy planning of the French Ministry for Europe and Foreign Affairs. In the past, François headed ECFR's Asia and China program and lecture at Sciences po and France's National Institute of Oriental Languages and Civilizations. Hello, François. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. So looking at the programme of the French presidency, it seems to be more focused than usual on foreign and security policies. For example, there are plans to establish consensus on Strategic Compass, to build on the EU's inter-Pacific strategy and expand ties with Africa. So what is it that Paris hopes to achieve in regard to the EU's foreign policy during its term?
1: It's interesting that you voice it in this way, because uh, seen from Paris, seen from France, uh, the French presidency is much more about uh, improving our collective tools, particularly on the economic front, uh, improving the EU's capacity to respond to challenges on the economy. Uh, Some of the other issues are, of course, traditional French uh, preoccupations, for example, the uh, twin issue of uh, African development and African security. Indo-Pacific strategy is uh, comparatively new, but France has been uh, uh, promoting it for some time, including at the uh, level of the EU. And so I think this is a structural difference with the way Germany approaches its uh, uh, anchor inside the uh, European Union with less accent on common foreign and security policy than France. And of course, I would say uh, the reverse if we were talking about European values, where at the declarative level, Germany is usually more present than France.
0: So what would you then name as the key objectives of the French presidency? is it not focused primarily on foreign policy issues, but rather looking at the EU-level economic affairs and also completing the defensive toolbox? Is that the focus?
1: Well, when we get to China, I think we'll see that uh, completing the defensive toolbox, continuing this uh, effort at the commission level, seems to be the uh, number one goal. But if we look at it more broadly... I think the issues of innovation, of industrial renewal, of tools for this at the European level, probably take priority in the French uh, presidency. Of course, you know, if you look at the programme for a semester presidency, is never purely a national programme. It's been debated. It's the result of a synthesis uh, with other key uh, member states and possibly with a lot of member states. It's also... The result of a dialogue with the Commission. So you find a lot which gives you the impression that the uh, targets of the French are really multiple, but that's really what the Commission in general is set to do. Uh, What is much more clear, I think, is President Macron's personal engagement in Europe, for Europe, promoting it very strongly in France, by the way, and he still in history, the president has done it most consistently and thoroughly uh, since the, the campaign for his first term, in fact, and it's going to be central to the campaign for his second term. And I think that that's probably uh, the key. But for that reason, perhaps, President Macron is unlikely during the French presidency to uh, touch off divisive issues, issues which we know are difficult to solve among member states. I think he's going to be bent on achieving consensus uh, on what can presently be done.
0: We will get to the domestic issues, to the elections and the policy of President Macron in a moment, but I wanted to zoom in exactly from those broader international and also European policy objectives to relations with China. It is referenced only three times in the program, but the program also mentions maintaining this multifaceted approach in relations with Beijing that we came to know on the European level. So still many of other points in the program can affect EU-China relations. So what are the key objectives of the French presidency in relation to China?
1: Somehow, I think the strategy is given out in the first mention of China in the program, and it's very bland. It's continuing, continuing previous policy. I think by that, there can be two things that can be deduced. One, although it's not explicitly mentioned at that point, the what I would call the, the, the tripartite or trinity of relations with China, cooperation, competition, and systemic rivalry that was outlined by an eu uh, Commission policy paper in March 2019, and that has been particularly controversial with China, that has done many uh, public diplomacy and and, and private diplomacy efforts to uh, cancel that trinity, to cancel at least the third part, systemic rivalry. I think we have a confirmation there, but soft-spoken that this is still on, and of course it's important. But the other way it can be understood is that... uh, there was a German semester not long ago uh, with Mrs. Merkel's hand in the China policy. And we know that was somewhat controversial because Mrs. Merkel came down more strongly than expected on the side of engagement, for example, promoting uh, the signature of a comprehensive agreement on investment, the so-called CHI. And President Macron has not wanted to disagree publicly for that. I think it is likely that the French are now waiting also to see what is the exact balance in the German coalition government and that for President Macron, the key counterpart, the key partner is Chancellor Scholz. And for that reason, I think there is a restraint on the idea of breaking away uh, with some of the uh, pattern of negotiation or attempts at negotiating with China of the previous presidency and of the Commission up to now. So this is very cautious,
0: and I think the two interpretations balance each other. So we see here continuation, at the same time restraint, but we also had some initial China-related action already under the French presidency. And I'm thinking here about responding to Beijing's economic coercion towards Lithuania and discussions about creating a united European stance on whether to boycott or not the Beijing Olympics. And on both of those issues, Paris signaled that it wants to coordinate a European position. So how is Paris handling these topics? And what can those initial signals tell us about how well France will be able to unite or to manage the China relations when it comes to uh, uniting the European Union member states?
1: I think the French attitude to the two issues is different. One is not very revealing. It's the announced decision to send a low level of government official to China for the Olympics, probably the most junior uh, member you could find, but still be present. That can be interpreted solely by the fact that Paris will host the 2024 Summer Olympics, the next Olympics on the calendar, and simply cannot avoid to be present at uh, in some way so it joins the long list of uh, states that are downgrading their presence at the Olympics but not renouncing that presence. Let's see what happens, though, with the uh, eventual sanitary emergencies and conditions. I know that even French officials that have very recently traveled to China face difficult situations of uh, so-called uh, bubble uh, that they have to stay in, and and that might also change the issue. But in any case, the uh, the cause uh, would be sanitary, not political. So I think we should not spend too much time on that. You cannot expect a country that's going to lead the Olympics in 2024 not to be present in some way at the previous Olympic. The stand on Lithuania to me is much more interesting because what is what France is essentially advocating is to uh, make an early call. On the uh, coming anti-coercion instrument that the EU has been setting up for some time, the Commission, in fact, has a plan that's been laid to uh, member states. Uh, It's not yet discussed, not yet adopted. And what France is calling for is an early implementation of that anti-coercion tool in the case of the Lithuania-China relations. That could be uh, potentially divisive with the German government since it is essentially german industry which is feeling the uh the the pain uh from the indirect trade sanctions that china has taken and it is very tempting of course uh for those industries to merely uh, ask lithuania to change its position and solve the issue from one side but that would go very directly against the spirit precisely of the anti corruption tool I do think that China has been acting very astutely on this, picking on an EU member state that's not very strong, that doesn't have a lot of direct exchanges with China. But once more, and it's interesting that it's at least the third time that this happens, uh, China is indirectly pressuring the German auto industry and therefore the German government. I've answered talking more about Germany than about France, the answer about France would be that, of course, we have less ste- stake in the game. We don't have the same uh, relationship with Lithuania, so we react to the uh, continuing existence of the single market, to the violation that China is practicing on uh, rules of trade with the with, with the single market. Of course, you could say that. A middle-of-the-road position would be just to take China to WTO. And it's very likely that China would lose the case with WTO. But the issue is that the WTO resolution will come after five years, comes with no penalty, and therefore China would get away with this game and would have made its demonstration that it can pressure the EU uh, from just about every angle. In fact, I wonder if China has not started this test case precisely with a view
0: of the anti-coercion instrument to try and preempt it. So, as you mentioned, proceeding the case at the WTO would take significant amount of time. Uh, you also referenced the possibility of accelerating the implementation of the anti-coercion instrument. But how early could it really be implemented, uh, especially as the coercion towards Lithuania is unfolding right now? what is the French ambition towards the implementation of the anti-coercion instrument?
1: I don't think the French position can work if it's not shared and adopted by a number of member states that would uh, give a preview of what they think the anti-coercion instrument should be uh, around Lithuania. One issue is potential compensation of Lithuania for the damage it suffers, but it doesn't get to the heart of the issue on, on EU companies uh that are sourcing components in Lithuania. Another one would be to start adopting some trade sanctions against China linking uh, to this issue. And of course it's another escalation that is possible. In theory we have a lot of leverage over China because our balance of trade is extremely lopsided and favourable to China and it's always the exporting country that is vulnerable to this type of sanctions, but on the other hand, we're simultaneously facing the situation with Russia, and China has a lot of staying power. So the uh, solution is not obvious, but what is sure is that from these difficulties that you mentioned, which are real, if we deduce that we should do nothing, uh, then China has won the game and Lithuania will have no choice but to rescind its decisions.
0: And related to that, because part of the discussions uh, from the recent informal meeting of European uh, foreign ministers in Brest was that idea of trying to de-escalate the conflict while buying time to develop the anti corruption instrument. And uh, is it in that context that the EU-China summit is appearing on the radar Um, It's supposed to take place during the first half of the French presidency, according to what we heard after the press meeting. So what will be the political framing of the summit, especially in the context of Lithuania? And what results could it really bring?
1: There are examples of EU summits uh, or EU meetings uh, uh, with other partners where the EU would strong arm one of its member states, particularly if it's not the most important member state. Looking back at history, I would think of a EU summit with ASEM where Portugal was pressured to uh, reach a compromise with Indonesia on Timor. It may look to you as a quite outlandish comparison, but these things do happen, and I think the Lithuanians are well aware of it. Uh, well aware that if they don't have EU support, they have to give in some way. But it's not as easy as it sounds because behind this we have the other issue, which is mutual lifting of sanctions decided around the Xinjiang and Hong Kong uh, issues. First, the sanctions by a few on a few officials by the EU and then there is the, the counter sanctions by China, which were my, much wider, uh, as you know. But that would mean that we're essentially cancelling our ability to take sanctions on any kind of value issue, and it would be a big downgrading uh, running counter uh, to what the U.S. is currently doing, which is much more high profile on these sanctions currently than the Europeans are. So a very difficult situation. I think also that much depends on what China might have to offered to the EU on other grounds. There has been a return in China to the kind of vocabulary that says we can disagree on some issues and still talk about others, so trying to sidestep this issue. But so far, I cannot see a new Chinese offer that would justify you know, complete re-engagement. Uh, on the other hand, one of the President Macron the French's other priority is climate negotiation, biosecurity uh, negotiation, including, uh, by the way, the issue of deforestation in Europe from purchasing programs by third parties, which largely means China. And so the French are paradoxically uh, going to be key promoters of the uh, carbon border adjustment tax, which has as a main target... uh, China, even if it's not uh, specifically said, and at the same time promoting climate and emission talks with China. So it could still go both ways, but I think the Lithuanian case has to uh, be resolved one way or another for the summit to be uh, effective. And we haven't talked yet about the main defensive issues on which France is taking quite a strong stand.
0: And those are exactly the topics that I wanted to return to because you mentioned the carbon border adjustment mechanism, the uh, the defensive or security issues in the, in the Pacific as well that are being championed by France. We also have, again, the the strategic compass with the discussion about hybrid threats. There seems to be a number of those points, uh, also Africa, in terms of expanding engagement, also probably in the context of uh, China's activity in the region, the economic one. So here here my question would be, don't a lot of those points uh, that are important for French presidency, don't they sum up to something that is probably going to make the EU and China rather diverge than converge. And even though we have this discussion about continuity, still a number of those points can be uh, seen as well problematic from the side of Beijing. Is is that a possibility that we'll still see divergence even though it's not explicitly stated?
1: I think your question framed
0: my answer.
1: The French policy on China on the declarative front, it's low key. It's very careful. In fact, you have a shortage of statements on human rights issues, for example, on value issues. There have been spikes occasionally, especially from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, from the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Mr. Le Drian. Uh, but these spikes are short, and then you have long intervals when not much is said. And the President is very careful uh, in his mentions of China. But behind this, uh, underlying this, I think you have a strong push for a strategic defense of Europe, for industry and innovation answers to the Chinese challenge, and a push uh, to adopt what remains to be adopted in the uh, European Commission defensive toolbox. Uh, That does reflect to hybrid warfare, which you mentioned, but of course in this case uh, Russia is the main issue, perhaps even more prominently than China currently, uh, but issues such as the uh, rules on subsidies from third parties, uh, creating a level playing field for European companies and foreign companies on the issues of subsidies, where currently it does not exist, that's quite important as an example that the French are going to promote. Interestingly, by the way, it's hardly mentioned, uh, if at all, in the program itself, but I, I know that it is something that is high on the mind. Uh, of the French officials dealing with the presidency. So we have an underlying program that's in fact stronger, multifaceted, not declarative, not explicitly targeted at China. We also have the issue of coordination with the US. It's interesting, of course, that it is Germany that highlights the priority of NATO, the priority of uh, defense cooperation with the US. But France matches it. In the past few months, with a renewed accent on coordination on issues such as tech exports, denial on critical technologies, uh, reinforcing investment screening, and so forth, and exchanging a lot of information with the US and also with Japan. So uh, uh, if I was uh, a bit simplistic, I would say the deep state is pushing harder than those who are entrusted with uh, the declarative aspects of French policy. And I think, of course, the Chinese have uh, sat up
0: and taken notice of this. Referring to the declarative aspects and also something that's uh, on the mind of French officials, some of them have hinted at the possibility of reviving the idea of EU 27 plus 1 summit format that was initially proposed by a German presidency in 2020. Is that an actual ambition of the French administration? And if so, why is Paris considering bringing it back?
1: To me, this is derailed by the very existence of the Lithuanian uh, case. How can you have a summit with the situation that China has created around uh, Lithuania? So uh, if it's a hope, I think it's a distant hope. I think what the French see, of course, in this, as the EU, as the uh, EAS and Commission people see, is to uh, definitely do away with the uh, 16 plus 1 or 17 plus 1, currently again 16 plus 1 with the departure of Lithuania, by the way, format with China, which was felt to be divisive. And since it's on the way down for many of the 16, a good occasion to create something else. But I doubt very much that this is going to happen, also for obvious reasons, which will serve as a as a pretext that it's very unlikely that President Xi Jinping would travel abroad in the next semester, in this semester, perhaps even this year.
0: Moving to more domestic affairs that we've already hinted throughout this conversation, as the French presidency coincide with French presidential elections, it is definitely a good moment to take stock of President Macron's China policy. So what have been the key issues driving the French-China policy during Macron's presidency?
1: I I think it's, again, continuity. There is an overall turn in French policy that starts under President Sarkozy. Uh, The key event was the uh, 2008 Beijing Olympic clash with China over Tibet and the uh, sanctions and public attacks uh, of China at the time. This moved the core of French policy away from China into large emerging partners generally in Asia or elsewhere, from uh, India to Brazil, shall we say. This was continued under President Hollande, even uh, if things were patched up with China and superficially It was a relationship with mutual consultation and uh, no prominent uh, quarrel that would be specific to the relationship. President Macron has continued this. He has this rhetorical ability, of course, to move from one ground to another very quickly. So people have taken from his uh, enthusiastic speech on the Chinese Silk Road project uh, during his first uh, presidential trip to China in Xi'an, that he was going to be an, automa- an automatic defender of the project and they did not note the footnotes where he said, well, yes, it's fair, fine, but on conditions that coincide with the uh, European terms. And France has probably been the most uh, restrained European party of all on Silk Road topics and Chinese investment in infrastructures uh, to use this uh, as an example. The positive part is the strong and permanent accent on, on uh, climate and biosecurity. On biosecurity, of course, the pandemic, the COVID issue, uh, particularly the issue of the Wuhan lab, has been very frustrating for France, especially because we, before the U.S. scientists, uh, had a hand in the uh, setting up of the Wuhan Lab, and yet it is widely known that we lost literally all influence and contact uh, within that context prior to the pandemic. So that was, of course, a setback. But this accent is going to continue. The other theme is, of course, one that you might mention, which is the so-called strategic autonomy emphasized by Emmanuel Macron for Europe. I think this has diverse interpretations. Basically, in French policy, there is a traditional reluctance to be uh, aligned in principle with the US. Things have to be discussed. There can be uh, differences of views which can be expressed and which don't prevent us from being allies. This, of course, has been reinforced more recently by the incident over AUKUS, Although paradoxically, it's brought more consultation between the US and France uh, than previously on the Indo-Pacific and China uh, issues. So I don't think that you can say that there was an absolute, for example, economic priority in relation with China. Yes, the French have traditionally tried to seal contracts as they always do and as the Germans do and as others do. Uh, It has not driven... Uh, President Macron's uh, policy. I think this theme has been waning ever since the days of the Chirac uh, presidency.
0: Let us return to the concept of strategic autonomy that you already hinted at before. And as you said, there are varied interpretations, and it frankly has caused quite an amount of confusion both within the EU and also on the global stage, it seems to be very often misunderstood. So what is the actual essence of the French ambition here and President Macron's ambition with strategic autonomy? And what does it mean for his understanding of the EU's position amid the Sino-American tensions?
1: We have three terms now. One is strategic autonomy, which is the way the French phrased it. We have in the German coalition program strategic sovereignty, which I think is akin to the German preference to extend federal the federal system to Europe. And, and it's a gambit that uh, Europe will reach the strategic sovereignty through the creation of more federal powers. I will personally use the word strategic resiliency, which I think is part of both the French and German programs. Uh, the French hover between a political definition of strategic autonomy, which is an ability to take decisions independently uh, from our key ally, the US. It doesn't mean neutrality. It doesn't mean equidistance. But it is also true that at times you can still find French officials who will talk about the so-called third way. And just as uh, many other voices in Europe will say that we need to uh, avoid or escape the uh, superpower conflict between China and the U.S. And I think that interpretation is wrong, because our best choice is to be on the side of the U.S. on this. And in fact, uh, there is little reward, even if one is cynical, for moving to the side of China. This has been abundantly demonstrated to a number of partners of China. Uh, but strategic resiliency is really what matters there. And I'm back to this notion that uh, the key effort of the French presidency will be on building up those uh, priority projects of the EU, for example, uh, uh, which started with batteries and started with semiconductors, but are now extending to uh, bio-medical projects, to uh, uh, hydrogen Uh, as an example, that we will attempt to have uh, more concerted support for uh, a renovation of European industry. That, of course, includes a push for the European arms industry. There can be here a division with Germany, which is still uh, very reluctant on the issue of arms exports in many cases, where France is less picky, is less choosy about the business uh, it does in the interest of building uh, a European base for defense. One key result, by the way, of the discussions with uh, the U.S. administration after AUKUS has been the recognition uh, by the U.S., even though it's not always uh, on the first page, but it's there, that you cannot have a European defense and you cannot push for uh, 2% of GDP Defense spending throughout Europe if you do not accept the notion that there is a European arms industry uh, that has interests and that the uh, American arms industry cannot swoop on the whole market. That's one aspect, of course, also uh, that links the issue of uh, strategic uh, autonomy with strategic
0: resilience. Let us bring China a little bit more into this discussion about strategic autonomy So the interpretation that Beijing tries to push forward is that European strategic autonomy is primarily about limiting dependence on the United States. And this is the messaging that also President Xi Jinping has been trying to put forward consistently in discussions with President Macron, with uh, then-Chancellor Merkel, as he talked about China's hopes that the EU will pursue the quote-unquote correct understanding of its strategic autonomy. So how are such attempts to frame the strategic autonomy in this sense by China are viewed by Paris?
1: Look, China has lost, so to speak, Chancellor Merkel, who in the last year of her very long term had turned out to be a strong defender of engagement with China. And after France come uh, the Czechs and the Swedes, which each have their own bilateral issues, sometimes very strong bilateral issues with China. It's logical that the Chinese turn to the French. I would note that for all these meetings, whether it's the merkel Sea meeting, whether it's the last uh, macron Xi Jinping uh, phone conversation, and even with Biden, we have Chinese communiqués that differ a lot from the uh, communiqués issued by the partners. So the Chinese communiques are really not about the uh, overall conversation. They're about China's stake and China's claims, probably voiced during uh, the meeting. So we should not take it as a summary. And in the case of Macron, for example, the French communique runs really in in other directions and mentions a lot of the issues with China. Uh, So you have to be careful. The second commonality in China's public diplomacy on this front, is to every partner to highlight the economic advantages and, I would say, the economic date in the relationship with China. That was always clear with Germany, of course, and uh, including uh, at the ambassador's level allusions to the uh, benefits or perhaps risks for the German auto industry. In the case of France, we have straight mentioned by in the communique uh, from the C meeting of things like aerospace, for example, as a stake uh, between the two countries. So China has a very simple take on that. The position that they welcome autonomy and hope this will essentially mean a disalignment with the US is a kind of traditional position of the uh, Chinese. I don't think they put much hope into it, but they never cease to uh, hint to potential rewards uh, this is a traditional theme that, that we use in any uh, in any setting. So I don't put a lot of store into that currently. What I look at and I've been looking at for a number of years is are there strong Chinese offers on any ground that would be you know a justification for the EU moving back to another position? So far, I haven't seen them because the main negotiation partner, And the main issue in China's relationship remains the U.S., essentially because the U.S. can do more damage to China than the EU can. And that means that uh, China deals and offers in priority concessions to the strongest.
0: And throughout our discussion, you referred to Chancellor Merkel. We also talked, of course, about uh, President Macron. And when it comes to this guiding of the EU's China policy, uh, Paris has often cooperated, Macron's Paris, has often cooperated with Merkel's Berlin. And hence, we had this term of Franco-German tandem on China. Do you believe that this is still going to continue now with the new administration? Is the format going to remain a thing? Or is France going to think differently about the ways that it tries to manage shaping the European-China policy or affecting the European-China policy?
1: In the main, yes, yes. Continuation, priority of the tandem with Germany. Difficulty, in fact, for the French to go it along on many other issues, such as the uh, European budget, uh, the policies I mentioned on the industry and so forth. And that's clear. On China, one problem we have is we don't yet see clearly what the net result of the coalition is going to be on actual German policy, uh, whether as a country or at the uh, EU level. But that also explains uh, some of President Macron's cautiousness. Currently, if if one is cynical, France doesn't want to stick its head up outside of the trench uh, if it's going to be alone on issues uh, facing China. If one is uh, less cynical, and perhaps that's the right interpretation, there is a priority of agreeing, pre-agreeing in a tandem with Germany, I think this is the basic reason why there was French support from, for Kai, for the comprehensive agreement on investment at the end of 2020. I don't think there was much enthusiasm in France, actually, for the, uh, for the agreement. And I heard uh, many officials privately skeptical of the effects of the agreement. But there was a will absolutely not to challenge what suddenly looked like a key priority of the chancellor at the time. And I think that is what we are currently seeing. So the relationship with Chancellor Scholz, and I don't know if it's the right word to use, the arbitration that Chancellor Scholz will choose in the various possibilities from the coalition will be essential. I end my answer uh, by emphasizing to you that the key lies partly in Germany, but I very much discount the hypothesis of France leading a coalition in another direction, because that coalition does not exist, because the key issues with China for Europe are on the economic uh, and tech and regulation front. And for that, Germany remains essential and the French are well aware of it.
0: Now that we got a clearer picture of uh, President Macron's administration's China policy, Let's take a look at how can the different election results affect the French-China policy. What scenarios might we be looking at? And we're very much aware that this is a highly speculative question, but what can we expect?
1: Currently, the polls are running in favor of uh, Mr. Macron, essentially because the other candidates are so divided. On the left, it's a... it's a a carnage, it's splintering. And on the right, you have at least three, uh, if not four, candidates, and that's very divisive. So just structurally, and because President Macron has uh, clearly steered the country around the pandemic, and is keeping up a very strong front on European issues, he has the advantage. But... uh, it's not impossible that the parliamentary majority would not be the one he expects because his party is weaker uh, than he is in public opinion. And therefore we have to look at the scenario where the majority in parliament would be more mixed than usually. Usually in France, the parliamentary elections that happen right after the presidential elections sort of confirm the choice for the president. It's not obvious today things could run Uh, a bit differently. Particularly voters on the right shift their votes for the legislative uh, election. So that's the main issue. What consequence would that have for China policy? I think it would be a loss of substance, not necessarily a change of direction. Of course, on the far right, there is a more public expression on the danger that China represents on the economic front, but never any solution that's being brought up apart from sovereignist and close the borders and the protectionist uh, scenarios and uh, relocalizing industry in France and so forth, uh, which is not likely to to happen under any circumstance. On the left, there are some ideological preferences for China, just as for Russia, that's in the uh, the French equivalent of Der in, in uh, La France Insoumise, uh, Mr. Mélenchon. But it doesn't go very far, uh, and it's unlikely to be influential at the level of policy. On the conservative right, we have one key figure now, uh, Mrs. Pécresse, who is the lead candidate for the conservatives, who has no real record on China. Is of course, closer to the days of Chirac, more middle of the road probably less experience in European mechanisms than Mr. Macron is by now. Uh, So we would probably lose some time, but not radically change the direction of French uh, thinking and French uh, official policy on China. It would be a a hindrance, but I don't see a, a reversal.
0: And wrapping up our discussion, as we're at the beginning of the year, Um, And we have probably a very exciting year in EU-China policy ahead. What recommendations would you give to officials involved in shaping China policy for 2022?
1: On the surface, Europe has made its realist turn. The perception of China has changed. And they realize that it's a hardball game uh, with China. In practice, there are two obstacles. One is the uh, temptation to say that if you re-engage China, we also alter its path and pay back for re-engagement, which has never happened up to now. Uh, The moment relations have got better is the moment when the Chinese have looked away and prioritized other partners, not given in. So the, the, the track record is that the Chinese interpret European engagement as weakness, not as a positive development to which they should give a a practical answer. The other issue is the notion that you can kick the problems upstairs at the EU level and deal safely bilaterally on your economic and commercial and investment interests with China. That doesn't really work well. I think Uh, Italy learned it the hard way after being the first G7 country to sign a memorandum on the Silk Road with China. And most of the Central and Eastern European countries, with the exception of accession Balkan states, have also learned it. So, unfortunately, uh, my basic recommendation is to reinforce the tools that allow not only to resist some Chinese pressures, but also to create sticks and not only carrots. Because, after all, if Europe had... uh, better, faster capacity to react, its economic weight in relations to China would become very significant. That's not
0: yet the case now. So it seems that we're up for searching for more strategic resilience. Francois, thank you very much for your time and for all the observations. It was uh, really a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thank you to you and Merix for the opportunity to talk to your public. Uh, I'm thrilled by this. You have been listening to Merics Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merics.org.